Hey everyone, welcome to the Missio podcast as we continue our, our way through our series, Seeking God's Kingdom First. Today we are going to be looking at a New Testament letter that we honestly haven't spent a lot of time in, which is 1 John. And we're going to be looking at this, this letter kind of as a case study for understanding what the core of the kingdom is really all about, and then how we are supposed to understand and live in that kingdom as followers of Jesus. And so to get started, have you ever heard the phrase, there is nothing new under the sun? I'm sure most of you have. It's actually a phrase that comes from Ecclesiastes um, and is, is meant to suggest, it's not meant to suggest, sorry, that there is nothing new in the world like Amazon or the Barbie movie or artificial intelligence. No, it, it's more a phrase that suggests that human history tends to repeat itself in patterns and rhythms, that there is like a basic cyclical nature to human history that repeats over and over. It's a reminder that in spite of our technological advances and cultural changes, the fundamental aspects of human nature and the human condition remain the same across time. And I was thinking about this, that sometimes in the Christian world, there can be a fear or skepticism around new things or this idea of novelty. Uh, And we can see this throughout Christian history. There is a skepticism around the pursuit of change or newness. But this idea of novelty, it simply refers to the newness or originality of a stimulus or an idea that helps shape people's behavior, their cognition, or their cultural dynamics moving forward in the world. You know, often the search for novelty or something new and unknown ignites people's curiosity and their drive for exploration and how to solve problems and shape the world. And so I think sometimes, though, this idea of novelty and change can cause people of faith to feel like the traditions of that faith are being taken out at the legs, like a carpet's being yanked out from underneath of them so that there's nothing new or there's nothing uh, nothing firm that they can stand on. And so I think there's a tension that churches will often feel between the longing to maintain the foundation of tradition while the rest of human, human humanity searches for the unknown and new ways of understanding the world. But think about this for a moment. Novelty, or that search for the new in creative ways, doesn't actually have the power to change the unchangeable truths of our human story. All that novelty does is search for new ways for humanity to continue in the search for how to fill the deepest needs of our humanity. Which, you know, to to understand, to find meaning and purpose, right? This, to me, is the tension between the idea that there is nothing new under the sun, even though everything is new under the sun. You know, we're, we're, we're both searching for new ways of understanding and create creatively understanding the world, while also searching for ancient truths about ourselves that have always been in existence. And so in philosophy, this is what we call a paradox, the idea of paradox. So paradox is simply a statement or a proposition, a situation that appears to be contradictory or logically inconsistent, right? And yet may still contain truths or elements of truths. And so paradoxes often challenge our understanding and our intuition, leading oftentimes to intriguing and thought-provoking ideas. 
And so one example of paradox is that human beings are created for, for community. That's like fundamentally what we are created for, to be in community, while also we are created to need silence and solitude. These are two seemingly opposing ideas about our createdness that nonetheless remain true to who we are as humans. And for followers of Jesus, there is a very real tension between the idea of following what is old and ancient while understanding how that tradition fits into a world that continues to change at lightning fast speeds. And so for me, the truth actually lies in the tension that there is nothing new under the sun. Our human nature will forever be clinging and searching for our greatest needs and longings, but also that every day is a search for novelty and newness to creatively experience the world that God has given us in new and exciting ways. In the summer series that we've been doing here at Missio called Forging Relationships, we've said many times that the two greatest human needs in relationship is first love, and so to, to, to love and to be loved, right? But then the second is to feel safe. And see, to me, this is the underlying human condition and nature, the desire to be loved and to feel safe. And the new or novel things that are happening in the world, they're not competing against that human longing for love and safety. Rather, I think as the world continues to shift and change, so much of that change can be best understood through the lens of all that remains unchanged about our humanity. And this paradox, this seemingly competing ideas, are something that actually Scripture will often address and talk about. And 1 John is one of those letters that really helps us to understand this. So much of 1 John is about John telling the churches, as the world is changing and new ideas and ways of seeing the world are entering into the human story, there is an, unch- there is an unchanging truth that should be held on to no matter what. An ancient truth of God that remains within us even as we continue to move forward throughout time. And that ancient truth, it's the foundation for all things, which is God's love for humanity as seen through his sending of Jesus, and then our calling to follow in that path of love in every aspect of our lives. So we're going to be looking at 1 John as a way of kind of understanding this, and we're going to have a lot of passages that I'm going to read, and so you can just kind of listen as I speak to uh, those. But 1 John is a letter that was written to a collection of churches and Jesus followers near the end of the first century. And so the distance between when Jesus was around and when the planting of all of these churches was happening was getting larger and larger. And for those of you who have been a part of Missio for the last five years, when Missio launched as a church, I'm sure you remember some of the things that we talked about and dreamed about and laughed about and prayed about, right? But but there's been a lot of things, I'm sure, that you don't remember. Because even in five short years, we at Missio have changed a lot as a church. There was a certain global pandemic that certainly aided in, in that change in many different ways. But even in a, short, in a short lifespan, like ours, there is the necessity to continue to create new ways of understanding our life with Jesus together as a church. You know, during year one of the pandemic, we spent, I think it was something like nine or 10 months doing what we called rediscovering worship. 
And, and what we were doing was we were trying to understand worship and, and, and better understand the diverse many ways that people worship God in Scripture from things like meditation and lament, music, art, prayer, study, listening, laughter, justice, and so many more things. And I just want you to think about this. We, we were going through this season doing what we felt like were new things, right? At least for us as a church, they were new and how we were, how we had been doing uh, worship on Sundays. But in that discovery of the new, we were really just rediscovering what was ancient. And I think often in the pursuit of novelty or creatively engaging new ways of life and worship with Jesus, we often stumble across what feels new to us, but it's actually not new to the human story. And so I just want you to imagine how Christianity would have shifted and changed in those 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death. So many of the letters that we have in the New Testament are talking directly to a lot of how those or what those changes were and those shifts, drawing people back to certain truths, pushing them out to do different things, reminding people the story of Jesus's mission and the call to follow him. And so when we read a letter like 1 John, one of the things that you notice is that John was seeing how some of the churches were beginning to allow these other ways of understanding God and spirituality to cloud the truth of Jesus. People were saying, you know, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, which was apparently the main issue that John was seeing entering into the churches at this time. But also around this time, there are things like Gnosticism that were beginning to rise. And Gnosticism basically was a way of viewing the physical and spiritual world where everything physical was infused with evil and everything spiritual was infused with good, creating a very dualistic view of creation. But the other main piece of Gnosticism centered on this idea that there was this kind of secret knowledge that could be discovered in secret ways that would then liberate the soul from our evil physical bodies. And while Gnosticism is not directly mentioned in 1 John, it was definitely something that would have been beginning to make the rounds in the churches that were there present and then would continue to make the rounds for the next hundred years, basically. And so John knows the truth of Jesus as Savior, as God's Son and Redeemer and Reconciler, that that was being challenged by countless other ways of viewing God and spirituality. But I'm sure that it wasn't just the things that he mentions in this letter that was taking place within those churches. Because you have to believe that there was a tension that those churches held even 2,000 years ago where they were trying to understand the balance between holding to ancient truths while also charting a path forward into unknown spaces and time. Like both sides of history were pulling on these churches. Remember your foundation while also moving forward. You know, again, one of the things that happened during COVID at its peak uh, when we were meeting online, one of the things that we would often mention as a church was that the methods for how church was being done, those were going to be changing. But the mission would remain the same. You know, the core of who we are and were didn't change, even though a lot about how we did things as a church, what really became important for us to pursue together, how Sundays looked and things like that, those all changed. You know, we have, we've always had this core value at Missio of simplicity. And when we first started Missio, we thought that we were doing a really good job at simplicity, at being simple as a church. But during COVID, we learned what simplicity really meant. 
that the heart of the church isn't the production of a Sunday experience, but rather the relationships that we have with one another and our communities around us. And see, I think John knows that this tension exists in the church and they are wrestling, they are struggling, they're trying to figure things out. And so John says, let me, <laughs> let me help you out here. And so John starts this letter to these churches by simply laying out his own credibility as a truth teller. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, it says, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so John begins by saying, look, what I'm about to retell you is something that you have known for forever because it's something that's been true since the beginning of time. And then he plays up his direct contact and proximity to Jesus himself to say, look, I knew Jesus personally. I knew him directly. I was with him for three years. I don't know if you guys have watched uh, the movie Elf within the last 20 years. And if you haven't, then I don't know what you've been doing around Christmas time because you should watch it. It's a great movie. But there's a scene in that movie where Buddy the Elf has gone to New York City and he's working at a toy store and Santa is coming. And the manger, or the manger, the manager announces that Santa is going to be there tomorrow. And like Buddy starts freaking out and he's yelling. He's like, Santa, Santa, I know him. I know him. And I'm sure you've been in that situation, right? Where you like knew somebody famous and you're like, I know that person. And I want other people around me to know that I know them. But specifically, we do this in moments when a person that we know is being talked about in a way that maybe we feel like just doesn't actually reflect who they are. And we want people to know, look, I, I know this person. And what you're saying, I don't think makes sense to who this person is. And this is this is what's happening with John in this moment where he's like, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing about Jesus. This guy that I know and I spent three years with. I looked at him. I touched him. I, I listened to him. And my testimony comes from my firsthand experience with him. It's not rumor or conjecture. It comes from sitting with him, laughing with him, crying with him. But not only does my credibility as a truth teller of Jesus come from my personal and intimate testimony of him, all of creation and time also testifies to the truth of Jesus, who was there at the very beginning. He was eternal. He's present with God, who is light, right? And I love this idea that God is light. Because in, in chapter 1, verse 5, again, God or John says God is light. And this is a callback of sorts to Psalms and Isaiah and Micah and more that all say that God is light. God is the creator of light, that he is light. And see, John is using the Jewish religious tradition and story to remind the churches, this is nothing new here, people. <laughs> we know these truths because we have recited them to one another for thousands of years. John goes on in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, 
And over and over, he is reminding them, you know exactly the truth of what I'm about to say. I've said it to you before, and you can trust my testimony because I, I know Jesus. I know him. But also the very creation itself testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. The unchangeable nature of our humanity testifies to this truth. See, I feel like John is actually pretty upset that these churches have so easily moved on from the base foundation of who Jesus was and is and forever will be, and how then, as his people who are following Jesus, should live and act because of that truth. And I love this because after multiple times of John saying, you should know this, you already have been told this, nothing's changed, we've talked about this, he then still, he still reminds them, of the very core of God's intention, of Jesus's purpose, and then our response to that. And then he says, here it is, and this is kind of what the rest of the letter is laid out as. He says, look, Jesus is the way, so stop listening to people who say he isn't. Second, love one another, and then also, by the way, love one another. And then thirdly, don't forget the first two things I just told you. And so I want to unpack these for a moment because these are like an outline of the entire letter. Uh, And I want to start with that last one, which says, don't forget the first two. You know, many of the letters of the New Testament have a very linear kind of start to finish style to them. First John, however, has a sort of cyclical progression to it. He starts with a certain topic. He closes the discussion on that topic and then he moves on to another topic and then later He returns back to the first topic and basically says all the same things, just in a little bit of a different way. And the reason that most people feel that John did this was to emphasize the importance of the ideas that he continues to circle back to, to say, look, if you didn't get it the first time, let me restate it to you again. And then if you don't catch it that time, let me say it one more time. So just that you can, you know, understand it and we are clear. (laughs) So this past week, Laura, my wife, sent me a meme, and the meme was uh, Phil and Claire Dunphy from Modern Family sitting on a couch together, and the meme's headline simply said, married life, telling your husband the same sentence 10 days in a row just to have him say, you definitely never told me that. And I was like, wait a second, what is she talking about? So I responded in a text, what have you told me 10 days in a row? And her response was just simply... Exactly. I mean, like, come on. This feels a little bit like what John is thinking here in this moment. I can't believe I have to say this to them again, but since I do, here it is. (laughs) And so John starts by saying, look, Jesus is the way. So stop listening to anybody who says otherwise. And so again, he starts in that first four verses of chapter one that we just read. He starts by saying, look, we have fellowship with Jesus because Jesus has fellowship with God, his father. John then goes on in chapter one, verse seven, he says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And remember, we've talked about how fellowship is more than just like this idea of simply like friendship around mutual interests, right? It's a depth of heart to heart connection, a transformative relationship that shapes a person's thoughts and actions and character. In fellowship with Jesus, we become like him. We sound like him. We act like him. And so John continues in chapter 2, verse 4, alluding to this imitation of Jesus that should be taking place 
among his followers. He says, whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says I abide in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. So if you were with us last time, Daniel talked about this idea of kingdom discipleship and mentorship. And and we read from Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, which says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so what John is saying in chapter 2 is that it's nonsensical to make the claim of being a disciple of Jesus, but not to live out the things that he did. Being a disciple of someone meant learning what it looked like to walk like them, to talk like them, to act like them, to speak like them. And Paul tells the churches, as does John in this letter, to be to be imitators, to do what Jesus did in the same way that they are also imitating Jesus. I mean, what's that phrase that we know all too well? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And we typically mean to say that we show respect for the people in our lives, that we see the character of God shaping who they are in in holistic ways. But we're not actually trying to become those people, right? We're trying to become like Jesus. But so often it takes seeing Jesus in, in another person for us to know what that actually looks like in our own lives. And so John is saying, look, if we follow and obey Jesus, if we say that we are abiding in him, which means to dwell with him, to remain connected to him, then we ought to be walking like he did. And over and over, John tells the churches, do not forget that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the way to life and joy, to forgiveness and to love. And our job is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to turn away from the noise of people saying Jesus isn't who he says he is. Our job is not to feel the need to correct people, to be combative towards them, but rather to trust that what you know of Jesus is true, that he is who he says he is because he always has been. And so twice John says, people are going to come and they're going to say things like, Jesus isn't who he said he is. You don't need Jesus. He isn't the way. And John is saying, listen, Jesus is the way and the way is Jesus and our role is is to walk like him and to follow his commandments. Which leads to the second point of John's letter, which is to remind the churches that at the core of God's purpose and Jesus' intention for his followers is love. And so in chapter 2, verse 7, he begins by saying, I'm not teaching you a new command. It's an old one. It's as old as time. (laughs) Then he says in chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then it says in verse 16 of chapter 3, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but indeed in truth. And this is one of the really important ones because he's making the point that the passing words of I love you doesn't actually translate to loving behavior on behalf of the person that you're saying that to. But rather the combination of words that lead to action is what true love is. 
And then in verse 23 of chapter 3, he says, and this, is my, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commands us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit that he has given us. So John says, look, we're, we're supposed to obey Jesus' commands. And what is his command? It's to love one another. And if we do that, we are abiding in him and him in us. And if that was all that we had to go off of, then this would be great. We would understand that that's what we're supposed to do. But there's a lot more. <laughs> he says it again in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect love is perfected in us. That's another great passage, but there's more. <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. God is love. And those who abide in his love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we might have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate a brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who, have, who, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. And there is one final passage on love. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All right. Now listen, that's a lot of passages talking about love. And this is, I think, where we actually come kind of, kind of come full circle, talking about living in the idea of this kingdom paradox. Remember, some of the paradoxes that we mentioned at the beginning, that there's nothing new under the sun, yet every day is new and new things are happening all the time around us. There's the paradox that we were created for community, but also for silence and solitude. And then this one is the one of the most important paradoxes that John actually mentions. That we conquer the world, but not through combat or divisiveness or, or fighting the people that we don't see or, or that we don't feel like see this, the world exactly the same way as we do. We, we conquer the world through our faith in the sacrificial love of Jesus that compels us to then extend that sacrificial love for one another. Why, though? Why does sacrificial love conquer? 
because it is the foundation of our very existence. It's the core of our humanity, the need to love and to be loved and to feel safe in that loving relationship. It's the thing we are reaching for in so much of this human existence, whether people fully understand it or buy into it or not. This is what we were created to experience. Love, love, love for and from the people around you and love for and from the very creator of all things. And John is saying, look, that core need of all people is fulfilled in the person of Jesus lived on through his followers through communities of faithful people who are every day being further transformed by his spirit more into the image of Jesus to pour out love for people as he poured out love for us. And the reason this conquers the world is because it is so absurdly opposite the way that we assume conquering takes place. You know, Laura and I watched the uh, Oppenheimer movie this last weekend. It's a story about conquering the world by creating bombs that have the power to destroy the world. You know, conquering typically is done by whoever is bigger and stronger and who has the most deadly weapons to subdue the rest of humanity. And John is saying this is just simply not what we're talking about when we say conquering the world as God's people in his kingdom. What we mean as followers of the most self-sacrificially loving person to ever walk the earth is that love conquers because it inherently sees the imago Dei and the people around you and seeks to bring the tov of God into their lives. Not for their destruction, but rather so that they can experience life and joy. That's what he says at the very beginning of the letter. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And he's not saying that once I write this and send this, I'm going to have joy. He's saying that once we are in fellowship with Jesus, the joy that we were created for is made complete through perfect love being extended from Jesus through us and onto one another. I think John was writing this letter to the churches to say, listen, as the world shifts and changes all around you, your job is not to be afraid of the changing world, but rather to trust in the unchangeable story of Jesus that is seeking to draw people into himself so that we can experience the tove of God and flourish as people defined by love for Jesus and love for others. All right, this has been a, a short case study from 1 John of, of what it means to honestly, what is the core of the kingdom? So thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone.